Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. Welcome to Bite Into It. Tonight we have Dan Salmon. Good evening. Ro Murray. Hello there. And I'm Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for tuning in. We've seen the European Union's general data protection regulation and wondered how a local regulatory response would look. Tonight, Dr James Meese will take us through the Consumer Data Rights Scheme, which is starting to be enacted in phases. And what else have we got tonight, Ro? Well, we've all wondered, how has social media changed the ways we have, view and engage with sex? We invited Dr Emily Vandenagel, who's just released a book, Sex and Social Media, to get away from the mainstream media moral panics to unearth the truth about how we're really using the internet for sex. I cannot wait to hear more about that. Before we get there, time for some news this week. Dan, what's been happening? Well, t- uh, today we had a bit, a bit of unsettling news in, and I suppose, you know, warning, it's a COVID story. Um, 30% of Victorians who have been tested for COVID-19 aren't picking up their test result calls because they're coming from private numbers. Now, I'm, I don't know about you guys, but I certainly am in the habit of not answering a, no- a number that I don't. Uh, recognise. There is some yeah, no way. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, look, it's it's one of these things, I mean, most of the time it's the bank chasing you for a, a loan uh, that you are overdue and paying, in my experience, but uh, some in, in this particular instance, um, if you're getting, if you have been tested for COVID-19 um, and you're getting a phone call from a number you don't recognise, you need to pick it up because um, if you're, uh, I, I, I believe if you are negative, you'll get a text message telling you that you are negative, but if you are positive, you'll get a phone call with um, sort of steps to what you need to do next. So, um, yeah, a bit of a community service announcement. Please pick up the phone because, yeah, 30% of people who are, have been tested and are positive aren't getting that call. That's 30% of people who don't know that they're, that they're sick. Um, so we need to be uh, extra vigilant around that um, in these times. Thanks, Dan. Good public service announcement there. So good news for European app developers, EU-based devs now have more protections following the passage of new regulations this week. Highlights include a minimum of 30 days notice of apps being pulled from stores, more transparency around ranking and different ways to mediate disputes. Now this has come from a lot of backlash against uh, Apple and the way that they uh, control their very closed shop of the Apple Store and particularly the ways that app builders build in um, uh, revenue streams through their apps and um, how Apple takes a big chunk of that in a lot of cases. So uh, this news article has come through Mac Rumors, which is a great source of the cutting edge of what's going on in the Apple world. Um, One of the new requirements is that Apple provide developers a minimum of 30 days notice before removing their apps from the App Store, really giving people chances to address concerns rather than just taking such a a tough approach which can have really um, harsh uh, consequences on people's customer Mm. base. So so that's a really good thing. Uh, It only counts for the EU at the moment though. So, you know, there's a lot more to be done in the rest of the world around um, regulatory controls that protect, you know, the balance of powers in in these spaces. Mm, he's hoping that, that we see a bit of a knock-on effect from this big change. 
Um, Spotify has also announced today that uh, the Spotify platform now supports video podcasts, which actually sets it up to compete a little bit with YouTube. Uh, for now, they're just going with a select group of podcasts. Um, so just for now, the average Spotify artists can't upload their own video content just yet. But it is an indicator of the massive growth of both podcasts in recent times and video content. And I was really amused by a tweet I saw in April when we really started experiencing lockdown where someone tweeted, um, live in fear, people, Amazon has just officially sold out of podcast microphones and headphones, um, people with a lot of time on their hands. But um, it's going to be a really interesting change to the Spotify platform, be very interesting to see how people take it up or don't. Yeah, it's already, I think, quite interesting how Spotify have really gone after the the podcasters um, who are exclusive to their platform. Someone mm. mentioned to me a podcast by London Holden the other day, which sounded hilarious about, you know, sex in London, kind of sex in the city type thing. Uh, very on, on uh, message for tonight's show. But uh, I... I immediately went to my podcasting listening area of choice and couldn't find it. And it took me a while to figure out, oh, my gosh, it's one of those only on Spotify type products. Um, yes, it'll be interesting to see how they manage to to balance um, how they're rewarding and attracting podcasters and now vodcasters to their platform. Uh, do yeah. you consume very many vodcasts, either of you? I don't. <laughs> no, nor do I. I, I. I do love a podcast. Um, they're kind of the soundtrack to my walk and run regime at the moment. But uh, the vodcast, I've, I look at screens enough for work and stuff. So, um, you know, trying to try I feel to, the same. Yeah. I wonder if people are going to start changing um, how they feel about that in, you know, if they're in lockdown scenarios. I want to see more people. I guess we'll see. I don't know. Maybe exactly, I'm just a bit yeah. old for vodcasting. It seems like it's a young person's game. <laughs> we wouldn't know anything about that, Dan. Nah, nah, of course not. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. We have Dr James Meese. He is a senior lecturer at RMIT with a research focus on media law and policy. Tonight, we invited him to discuss the Australian Consumer Data Rights Scheme. Thanks for joining us, James. Regular listeners have probably heard a fair bit about the EU's General Data Protection Regulation, um, which, which is really about expressing uh, and establishing their data protection and privacy for the average person and the average consumer and, and how to manage that. Um, Australians have, have wondered, you know, when we'd get some rights around these sort of, sorts of, um, of our personal information. What could you tell us about uh, the passage, like the long passage of the Australian Consumer Data Rights Scheme? For sure. So the most important thing to say is that the consumer data right is a really exciting piece of legislation, but it doesn't replicate the GDPR in any way. So the only thing that this, this, the consumer data right or the CDR does is it allows Australians to access their data and direct companies to share it with others. So that's like a really exciting thing, but it's not quite the substantive sort of levels of privacy protections or things like the right to be forgotten that we're seeing happening in Europe. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, look, in the on the 26th of November, the Australian government first announced the introduction of this right, but it has been a staggered introduction of, of different um, aspects of that. Uh, could you tell us a bit about what we're looking at coming into play this year? Yeah, sure. So the major way of thinking about the consumer data right is really that it's the introduction of open banking within Australia. So open banking is something that's been happening in other jurisdictions, so the United Kingdom, 
um, simple Hong Kong, other kind of countries that are kind of comparable to Australia. And what we're now seeing is over the past couple of years, um, the major banks have been working furiously to ensure that um, challenger banks and third parties um, can potentially get access to consumer data. Importantly, if consumers themselves direct um, the original banks to hand that data over. So the major reason this has kind of come about is because, um, you know, obviously um, there's been a lot of consumer concern around the banks for the Royal Commission, etc. And, um, you know, the government, I think, sees it as a way of giving consumers at least some control of the kind of, over the kind of data they're producing. So, James, have there been major gaps in or, you know, or difficulties in getting things done with the way that our data has been handled by the banking sector to date? Uh, look, I think it's just been a society-wide gap. So the major, um, I guess, it's been talked about for some while, but the major kind of instigator for this reform, it came out of a Productivity Commission report into data availability and use. And, you know, despite the limitations of the legislation, it actually kind of made a really important point, which is that data is becoming more important to companies. And currently, ordinary people can't really get a hold of it. And companies are you know, collecting more data, making sure that data helps their bottom line, and um, consumers have no control and no power. So, um, you know, the idea and the real spark for this legislation was to, as data becomes more and more important to society, ensuring that there's actually some use for consumers. And, you know, the key kind of use cases might be in terms of open banking, you know, getting some actual proper financial data, going to a budget management app in an easy way or something like that. So we're kind of trying to balance the um, balance the ledger a bit, I guess you'd say. Yeah, for sure. Um, you mentioned that um, obviously with the CDR, we don't quite have the same structure um, in Australia in terms of this legislation as the GDPR. Um, where do you think that the CDR will eventually allow Australia to sit among other nations in terms of those data protection standards? The, the, the real... Um the real thing, the important thing to note about the CDR and I guess about the legislation in general is that it's a massive shift. So obviously we're talking about banks, other kind of industries that are um, being um, touted, well not even touted, they're going to come next to electricity and telecommunications. Um, it's really hard to give power to consumers around their data while, all, while also retaining the kind of high level of security that um, banks acquire, for example. So one of the really good things about this piece of legislation is it's actually really rigorous. There's a much higher level of privacy standards than is in the Privacy Act. The only problem with these standards is they just apply to the transfer of data and the kind of activity around the consumer data right. It doesn't apply to, you know, the broader Australian society. It just applies to any issues emerging around data transfer in relation to the CDR. For so sure. Have, have you had any feedback from um, early adopters and their experience of getting accreditation or getting started on this CDR road? 
No, but I think what's really interesting is just to look at the international comparison. So, um, you know, there's been a lot of excitement, I guess, from government about this reform. And, you know, it's got a lot of real promise and this idea that consumers can get empowered. And I don't think it's a real um, surprise that the first um, industries to kind of be targeted are the problem industries like banking, electricity, telecommunications, a lot of, um, yeah, there are a lot of angry consumers who are kind of, you know, being faced with bill shock, et cetera. But, you know, we, we, we know from experience that uptake in the United Kingdom was slow. Um, a lot of the public wasn't aware of the potential benefits and all of organisations weren't actively using the APIs. But we do know that there is one budget management app um, followed that is um, coming on board. Um, so there's some early, um, you know, there's, there are a few companies that are going to be early adopters in Australia, but we know from international experience that, you know, this, this reform has a lot of promise, but, um, you know, the proof will kind of be in the pudding. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Now, James, we had last um, mentioned, you know, using things like uh, PEXA and some of the security issues there were in, in you know, automating and uh, digitising some of these formerly analogue processes. I wonder if you could try and go over that again. Yeah, first absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I was just saying that, um, obviously, I think um, there was a lot of work to be done um, on the bank side of things, but I think it was also an opportunity for them to to really look at their data handling and, um, I guess, kind of centralise a lot of their data that had previously been been siloed. So um, that's, that's, you know, that's really good, I guess, in terms of a security perspective. But I think the other thing to kind of point out is um, there's some forward planning involved where we might be seeing a, few, a future devolving of um, services and, and a range of other things from things like banks to third parties. And the legislation is designed for um, startups and other innovative companies to come in and intervene there. So, you know, and on one sense, it could be really positive to download a budgeting app and then potentially link up to, to a range of banks and apply for a home loan through your budgeting app that uses your own financial data from your current bank. But obviously, the further you remove yourself away from that primary data source, um, the more risks there are. Yeah, yeah, we've absolutely seen that um, in other territories they have gone for um, a lot of rights on the consumer side to verify that the data is correct and, and methods, you know, to intervene and, and correct things. Um, I guess here people are used to banks sharing their data when they do credit reporting, but beyond that... Um, uh, there's been anti-money laundering and counter-terrorism financing sort of uh, tech, uh, financial instruments going on in this space. Um, do, what do you see as being like the next wave of innovation uh, in the fintech space? Well, I mean, I think the key thing is, at least here, is it just enables a range of, you know, not only challenger banks, which are the obvious um, kind of candidates, but really just a range of third-party consumer-facing apps. So, you know, the, 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 the hope is um, that there could well be a range of apps and companies that actively support consumers and help consumers make sense of what's becoming an increasingly, I guess, complicated data economy. And I think we've seen that in the last couple of years. It's harder and harder for consumers to take um, 
to manage not only their personal data but their more relevant data to say getting a mortgage or you know understanding their bills and any any sort of companies and intermediaries could that is that could assist in that space could be of real value. Has what has the response been from um, the financial industry? Uh, in terms of uh, other, like, international people operating in our market? Yeah, look, I think there's been some kind of general debate about that, and I think there was a real kind of... Um, in the in the kind of reform period, there was some discussion about the extent to which this data could be transferred, but there is a sense that there could well be, at least on the face of the, the current legislation, to my understanding... Um, some scope for companies outside Australia to engage with Australian companies and make make use of that data. But I have to say that there are, you know, credit credit to the um, the kind of legislators here. The the kind of regulatory setup around it is quite rigorous. But obviously, with all that with all that regulation, with all those protections, there is some risk. I should also just say that. Um, the Act also was amended, so there's also the right for a person to have their data deleted, which I think is important to note mm. once you start talking about these transnational data transfers. But even from within Australia, the idea that obviously consumers can share their data and access their data and ask their bank to, you know, give their mortgage data to some other provider. But the ability to remove that data is something we don't often see, and that's a really... Um, important reform that Labor introduced or amendment, rather. That is great. And uh, it makes us think of the right to be forgotten by banks, really. <laughs> exactly, yeah, if only. <laughs> Which, um, you know, is an interesting um, point that, you know, financial institutions um, will obviously need to build a consent model. What, what do you think that that'll look like for consumers on a practical level? Well, I think the real... Um, beauty of these reforms, and again, it's the kind of, um, the sad story that these kind of, um, I guess, um, reforms and approaches to privacy only sit within the privacy safeguard of the safeguards area of the CDO and don't extend to the Privacy Act. But, um, you know, there's, the, the consent has to be clear and unambiguous, which is a much stronger articulation of consent. And, you know, there, there can't be any pre-selection of radio buttons, for example. Um, your your consent can't be um, linked to other businesses, so you can't give um, consecutive consent for an app to say, we want your, your bank data and this data might also go elsewhere. Um, you know, at each point of this process, and I think obviously starting with banks is actually potentially a good idea because security is such a key concern. Um, I think we may feel, I mean, hopefully based on the legislation, some of them are stronger and some of the strongest um, examples of kind of um, consent and notification in privacy. That's fantastic. Um, the idea yeah. of speaking to the level of like option buttons and what have you, addressing those potential dark patterns of usability, user experience, mm. it's, really, it's really interesting to hear. Um, James, with, you mentioned um, the opportunity for for new players, new challenges to come into the, the financial sector given this opportunity. What do you think is attractive to that for consumers? Is there only the expansion of choice or are there other, are there other subtleties that, um, that are of benefit to the consumer there? 
Well, well, I think the feedback effect is just, you know, stagnation. I think, you know, as as consumers, we're all familiar with, you know, moving house, signing up to an electricity provider or signing up to a bank. And then your stuff's there and you're just like, look, I could change, but I have to call someone and I haven't called someone in two or three years, you know, or, you know, all of this kind of stuff. And, um, you know, there's a real sense of just stagnation when you're up to stay with these companies. And I think, um, you know, what data pool is portability effectively means that it's making it easier for people to move companies. And that may well be between, for example, the big four and sort of mid-tier banks or secondary banks rather than just upstart challenger banks. We may just see general consumer um, movement across different sectors as people find it easier to compare bills, check prices, understand their finances better, and that may well help. And indeed, that was probably the goal of the reform was to try and get some more mobility amongst people between businesses. And you know, ideally, mm. since the um, reform was kind of you know activated lives by the Productivity Commission, you know, increased competition. Yeah, for sure. When we, we saw that the, the rollout will first apply to the banking sector, followed by energy sector and the telco sector as being proposed to follow, um, they really have tackled, you know, in terms of banking, one of the more complex, enormous behemoth of an industry to go first with, haven't they? Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I don't know their thinking, but I would presume that it's 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 a it's in a way it's the best sector to go go for because you've just got to solve all these difficult problems, um, you know, and and once once you get through these major. Um, these major issues, and obviously with the big four, there's real evidence of, um, you know, a, a, and obviously that's for that's for broader, you know, financial structural reasons. But there's a real scope to potentially um, soften that market somewhat and um, give other, you know, smaller banks a leg up. Um, but you know, again, as I think I mentioned earlier, um, I, I just find it very interesting that these three, three sectors are also really clearly the ones where there have been longer-term uh, consumer issues and consumer complaints. And you know, I don't think it's a surprise that they're the three that have been targeted to start off with. Yeah, the the ease of movement as consumers between uh, operators in those sectors, I think, is very appealing. Hey. Dr. James Meese is a senior lecturer at RMIT. And uh, James, we thank you so much for speaking with us tonight. No, thanks for having me. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. You are listening to Bite Into It. Uh, my name's Dan. We've got Vanessa and Rowena on the line as well. And Van, who are we speaking to next? We'll be speaking shortly with uh, Emily Vandenagel, PhD, who's a lecturer in social media at the School of Media, Film and Journalism at Monash Uni. She's also the writer of the recent-released Sex and Social Media, a new book co-authored with Dr Katrine Tiedenberg. She joins us now to tell us about it. Welcome to the show, Emily. Hi, how are you going? Very well. well. Very great well. to have you, Emily. It's great to be on the show. So, Emily, um, you and um, Katrine have obviously been focused on the marvellous world of sex and uh, social media research for quite some years. But what was the final catalyst for this book coming about? 
Well, Catherine was approached by Society Now, who um, she publishes earlier. She wrote a, a whole book on selfies earlier um, in the series. And upon deciding that she didn't want to write another book by herself, she slid into my Twitter DMs. <laughs> <laughs> How apropos. <laughs> exactly. Beautiful. Beautiful. Fantastic. I think something that that jumped to mind when we when we heard you'd written on this topic was uh, moral panics. Uh, whenever we we see articles about sex and social media, we're like, oh no, it's going to be an overblown, overwrought reaction to um, the way young people are getting together these days. Um, what can you do about blowing up some of the the myths and what I've just said there, Em? Well. We are very familiar with the idea of, of moral panics around this area, around sex and social media. In the book, um, we talk about the trifecta of anxieties, and that's what happens when sex, technology and public life come together, right? People are anxious because there's a lot of tension at that particular interface. But the way that we've tried to remedy some of that is actually just by approaching the whole topic and the whole concept of sex on social media with a really, like, explicitly sex-positive feminist lens. We're not here to judge. People like all kinds of things, and they get up to all kinds of things online. What we're really interested in when we talk about social media sex is consent and context. You know, if, if this is between consenting adults um, and they're able to properly contextualise what's going on, then that's a judgment-free zone as far as we're concerned. Absolutely. Um, you know, I found your chapter, which is called The Internet and Sex, really interesting because obviously the social media censorship of sex has been a huge issue across the board, um, but also it's been highlighted for people like, you know, sex educators, sexologists and other sexual health workers, not to mention, obviously, the vast number of people who actually do use social media for sex in a lot of ways. Um, you know, this can obviously even fold in fintech companies, for example, who've denied credit card facilities to sex toy shops and made changes to FetLife and things like that. Do you see this changing anytime soon or do you think the social media barometer is getting more conservative rather than less? Well, I would love it if we took a much more sort of like, like even bigger than social media, more culturally wide approach to sex, which destigmatises it on a lot of different fronts. You know, this is not simply about what you can post on Twitter and what you can't, it's a huge story that really, you know, I guess kind of um, judges and often demonises, especially women, especially people of colour, especially queer people, um, whenever they're expressing some kind of interest in any form of sex, I, I suppose. So I, so I think, you know, what I would love to see is firstly a kind of culture-wide appreciation that sex is part of life that everybody has a body um, and that actually when people can access the information and the encounters that they're looking for, they can have a lot of fun and do it really safely. Um, do I see platforms actually embracing that? I'm not sure. I'm not confident, I guess. Um, we, we saw just recently, 2018 was when Tumblr banned all not safe work or adult content on their platform. Um, it's yes. not made very many people happy. Yeah. 
No, I mean, you know, off the back of that was sort of tumble again, really, you know, it almost became the poster platform for everything from user numbers crashing after deplatforming a lot of the not safe for work content to the, you know, the overzealous or really poor algorithms that were seeking out the dirt. You know, one great example is um, a friend of mine who's a historical fashion designer on Costumia was flagged for Edwardian bustles for crying out loud. <laughs> um, so, me. you know, what's your research shown what other platforms could potentially learn from the Tumblr experience? I think it's really important to acknowledge that, I, you know, I, I think getting past that first hurdle of, hey, guess what, adults like sex sometimes. Um, maybe not in public all of the time, but certainly, you know, this, this, I, I think adults not safe for work content <clears throat> is really not something that should just have some kind of blanket ban, um, you know, across any sort of social media platform, unless I guess the social media platform is geared towards children. But if we're talking about the, these, these really big ones, you know, Twitter and Facebook and, um, and YouTube, for example, there, there are contexts in which sex is appropriate. And what we actually see social media users doing is using what they have to make the most of that kind of social media experience. Like, for example, in my research, I've come across a lot of people who have a main Twitter account and an alt Twitter account for sexy business, and they follow, you know, just a small group of intimate friends or followers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the other things um, that's, you know, separate to sort of Tumblr-geddon in recent years was um, Foster-Sester um, coming into play. Um, would you be able to um, describe for our listeners exactly what Foster-Sester is and, and some of the issues that, that's risen on the social media sex front off the back of it? Sure. Foster-Sester is a, a long acronym that basically refers to a suite of acts that were passed in the US in 2018. The idea basically was that um, people wanted to formalise the, um, you know, like getting rid of sex trafficking, right? And I think that's a very interesting place to, you know, like if you look at that as the, as the beginning point, people saying sex trafficking is is bad and we want to stop it, that seems like a really sensible and logical move to make. But if you look at the end point, which is no one is allowed to, to be nude in any context on Tumblr or talk about sex or hashtag things, you know, with, with sexy hashtags, that doesn't really seem like it's adhering to the initial kind of goal, but also doesn't really seem that sensible or that helpful. Right? So a lot of things happen in between. Basically, the idea that platforms were going to be held responsible for the content that users put up on their platform became a huge deal with the Foster-Sesta legislation. And all of a sudden, it became harder for platforms to, to take that stance of, oh, we're just a neutral conduit, you know? We're not publishers, we're not editors. Whatever people put on the site is their business. When it became harder for them to step away from that, all of a sudden, some platforms got really nervous about just what constituted, you know, inappropriate material. That's when you start to see something like Tumblr instituting a site-wide ban. Emily, you talk, uh, well, you write a bit about sexual practices on social media. Um, unfortunately, I'm not that deep into your book yet. And um, I, do, I do wonder, you know, how 
you, you talk about how difficult it is moderating and setting up community guidelines around some of these things because people will find a way, right? You ban something and we you don't give us really sexy emojis and we create the emoji meaning that we want, for example. So I wondered um, if you if you started talking about how um, how people sort of evolved their own languages and and ways of connecting on social media around sex. Yeah, look, the most straightforward example of that is um, is the eggplant emoji, right? Yeah. We don't have a pe- we don't have a dick emoji, do we? But we've begun using the eggplant in so many sexy contexts that it's almost become a bit strange to use it just as an ordinary vegetable. Um, <laughs> that is so true. Uh, and it's so funny that they, they landed on the eggplant. I mean, it could have been the rocket. There's so many phallic emojis out there. It could have been almost so anything. Many. There's a carrot. <laughs> there are all kinds of... All kinds of possibilities, but but you're right. People find a way. Life finds a way, um, and, and so does sex. And it's 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 actually, I think, some of the the most fascinating parts of this research is is looking at just how people approach platforms that oftentimes really want to you know stamp the sex out and and declare like Facebook that they're you know for everybody and there's no adult content here. People still use Facebook for sexy business. You know, the, well, what's happening in, in the Facebook Messenger side of things, you know, those private chats. Um, there's absolutely, you know, a lot, of, a lot of people using that platform for what they can get away with, I suppose. Um, that Just kind don't... of implies they're up to something that's no good. But, of course, like, this, again, this is a normal <laughs> part of being an adult. Yeah, and I love that you, you're talking about this and normalising it because I think so many media articles around sex and social media are very um, – sometimes they're inflammatory. Uh, they, they certainly are a bit over the top. And yet this is just a normal part of life these days. Uh, but I wonder, did you look into, like, how meaningful um, online connection around sex is for people who are in marginalised communities, um, say, or, or in, you know, or identify in any of the LGBTIQ TIQ and A plus type of space? You know, was there extra importance around being, being able to connect? I think, um, you know, we, we did speak to people who, who identified themselves as queer. Um, and I think especially for those people, Tumblr really stood out as, as something, as a space that they thought was very accepting of all kinds of different, um, you know, gender and sexuality preferences and ways to visualise and articulate those sorts of things. But, you know, it was a real loss. People spoke with a lot of feeling about Tumblr and about the sorts of encounters and conversations it led them to as, as being really important or special. Um, also, you know, for, for a lot of women that I spoke to, having very particular channels to get sexy on was, again, something that they were very careful about in terms of weighing up, you know, what like, like how public or how private they wanted that communication to be. Um, I spoke with certainly more than one woman who who had, you know, um, a, a sexy private Instagram account that they weren't necessarily sending, like, posting nudes to to flirt or to lead to a hookup, but they were posting, like, kind of everyday casual nudes 
for their friends who were women or, or, or queer people in their lives to see and to like and to appreciate. And instead of being erotic, it was actually something that was really kind of body positive. Yeah. Um, and those sorts of, you know, those kinds of ways in to, to being more comfortable with your body, more open with your gender oh. and sexuality and sex life were, were really meaningful to people. Yeah, I think in lockdown we've seen that even more. I mean, you know, certain get-togethers just aren't the same if certain people don't flash you. You know, you're just like, I'm not sure that this meeting ever happened. <laughs> exactly. And, and do exactly. You think, do you think that we're going to see – you mentioned before, like, the eggplant gets a new meaning. Are we seeing, like, a push from the, I suppose, the moral uh, panic people to kind of take that next step and, and like, remove the ones that infer sex as well? Or do, do you think that – that kind of nonsense will be, I suppose, stopped by common sense? Well, it, it feels sometimes like a bit of a back and forth. I think there's a real push to include, you know, a lot of these kinds of, kinds of um, like, sexy experiences or, or nudes or whatever on, on social media platforms, but there's always pushback, you know. This is not a straightforward... Um, things used to be more conservative and now they're increasingly less conservative kind of thing. There, there are enormously, you know, um, pe like people and platforms can be very strident about not wanting any kind of adult content to happen anywhere on social media. Um, and you see that in a whole lot of, of platform policies and platform architectures. So, yeah, people do keep making those moves of, you know, developing new ways to, to talk about sex and to connect in, in sexy ways. Like, a while ago, Facebook said they were going to ban sexy emoji on the platform. I don't know how they were going to divine the context of the eggplant <laughs> or the peach or the taco, <laughs> but, they, they, but they threatened to do it. Well, all those poor people who just wanted to eat some Mexican for dinner. I mean... Yeah, I we're going to do what linguistics professors can't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And hell believes, you know, a uh, an eggplant taco is the end of the world by the sounds of it. Like, sorry, I'm going to stop. Can, can you imagine what archaeologists in 2,000 years' time are going to think about our, <laughs> our communication? These people ate a lot of moussaka, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah they exactly. loved their miso eggplant. Gee whiz. <laughs> Uh, a community of gourmets, for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Emily, were there any uh, sort of theories that you went into this research with that were, that were you know, surprisingly debunked for you? I think investigating, you know, just how puritanical some platforms could be was disheartening in some ways. Mm -hmm. You know, there's there's a real there's a real sense that um, platforms are, are growing up with us. We're we're getting so used to having, you know, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram on our phones with us all of the time. Even though just ten years ago that was such a different kind of media landscape for us. And to think about the ways that some platforms are just so intent on taking all of that you know, sex in all of its forms, whether it's information or whether it's, yeah, like, you know, people articulating their, their queerness in a really politically important way or whether it's, you know, a first-year Twitter DM. Um, like, like wanting to just completely eradicate that aspect of our lives and our, and our sexualities and our sex lives was 
Yeah, kind of disappointing. Um, but what was not disappointing, absolutely, was, was again, you know, the ways that people continue to negotiate these platforms and curate their audiences and their content in ways that lead to really, you know, meaningful and positive and um, just plain fun kind of scenarios. Well, I think um, as well as being educational, we might get some practical real-life tips if we read this book. Uh, we have been speaking to Dr. Emily Vandenagel about sex and social media, co-authored by her and Katrin Tiedenberg. Um, Emily, we also noted that you've got some research that you're doing now related to sex, social media and COVID-19. Do you want to do a bit of a call out for that? Sure. I'm, I'm running a survey at the moment about um, sex, social media and COVID-19. I, I have actually got, <laughs> gotten a few, um, res, you know, responses to that to that survey already, but it's it would be great if people wanted to uh, log on and tell me more about how COVID and how lockdown restrictions have impacted the way that they use social media for sex. I'm on Twitter at, at MVDN, E-M-V-D-N, and there's all the information on there. Um, but so far, yeah, people have articulated quite a lot of challenges to do with getting sexy during lockdown. Um, well, sometimes, that sounds very responsible of them. <laughs> yeah, sometimes social media seems to help and, and provide an outlet. Sometimes social media is kind of complicated when it comes to, to finding the experiences thereafter. Thanks so much for joining us tonight, Emily. You're so welcome. It was my pleasure. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. You are listening to Bite Into It uh, with Vanessa, Dan and Ro. And uh, we've got a bit of news, Van. Yes, so a um, little little bit of news on the go at the moment is uh, Snapchat's Snap Minis have arrived. Um for those of you who haven't heard of it, they're basically like little um, miniature apps that can be coded up in uh, HTML5 and released on Snapchat. And one of the first ones that's come out is an in-app meditation experience with Headspace. So Snapchat users out there, have a little forage around and have some fun. Ab absolutely. Um, Twitter is going after <laughs> QAnon content. Now, uh, those who might know who QAnon is, a bit of a, you know, in, uh, Twitter ex uh, conspiracy theorist, um, lo loves talking about Trump. Um, the so uh, Twitter has announced that tweets containing links to known QAnon content will be blocked and Twitter accounts tweeting QAnon content will be banned and uh, no time too soon as far as I'm concerned. That crap Agreed. needs to not be on the internet or even in someone's brain. Um, I, I, yep. Yep. I, I, yep. I, I, Good to <laughs> see them cracking down on that. Absolutely. Um, and uh, just uh, one, one quick one um, for those of people who li are like me, spend a lot of their free time looking at Flight Radar 24. If you go to the Flight Radar 24 app um, and search for the flight number QF7474, you will see the final Qantas 747 currently flying over to LA and uh, it created a little pattern on its route um, of, of, of the Qantas flying kangaroo, which I thought was very cute and very poignant and a little bit sad, if I'm honest, but uh, that's uh, for the flying nerds out there. Triple R. We had Dr. James Meese from RMIT and Dr. Emily Vandenagel from Swinburne. Um, great to see the amazing... Uh, work going on from our academics in the research sector. Uh, we're really thinking of them a lot lately because, 
you know, we've we've seen them not be that supported through these challenging COVID times and we're seeing international enrolments go down. We know that they've adapted to virtual learning really incredibly. I'm hearing great stories from students about how um, it's managing to help them feel connected, that they're still um, getting their work done, um, the, the sort of care that their lecturers are showing, um, but really thinking about uh, particularly, I guess, STEM students at this time. We know how important collaboration is to that learning process and just, just being able to, to be connected. Um, yeah, yeah, so that's... It's a it's a tough environment for universities as well, although I have been hearing that um, people adapting have been adapting quite well to COVID-19 and there's been a really big take up in certain online courses, particularly some of the shorter ones and your more compact qualifications rather than the heavy duty degrees. So it is really good that people are feeling more confident about at least getting some small bites and single subjects you know, Absolutely. done, which is great to see. Yeah. Hey, big thanks to Dan Salmon and Ro Murray, my co-hosts tonight. I'm Vanessa DeHolker. Thanks to our talks producer, Elizabeth McCarthy. We've been bite into it. We'll be back next Wednesday evening. Hi, this is Vanessa DeHolker. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or bite into its Twitter or Facebook accounts. 